your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 12. All right, and last week we started this big idea that um, what is the mission of, of Jesus' church? And, and really wanted to just nail down that, that we're joined together by our faith in Jesus, that we're a community. And today, we're, as you see that, last week, this is the place where God covers our shame and joins us together for a purpose. This week, we see what that purpose is. And, and the rest of Peter, then, is going to say, here's how, and how you shall live in light of the gospel. And so, yeah, let's look at more what the church, what God calls the church to be and then to do. And we'll read the passage and pray and look at this together. This is God's word. It says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is the word of our God. He has spoken to us today uh, in love. Everything he says is true and trustworthy. Uh, let's pray together. Our Father and God, you have called us out of darkness and into the light of your presence, um, that once we were people who had no idea where to go with our guilt and shame, uh, we didn't care at all about Jesus and his mercy and the hope that he gives, but you have opened our eyes, you have changed us, and so I pray this morning as we look at this great text, we would not only fall more deeply in love with your many excellencies, but that you would use this to form us into a people who are able to talk about Jesus to one another and to our neighbors uh, who, who are without hope in the world, uh, who don't know Jesus, the living, resurrected hope. So form us into the image of the one whom you sent on our behalf, even to death on a cross, we pray. Amen. So earlier this week, I emailed a, a video, it's a short video of a, a public testimony by uh, a, an atheist who's 
public about his lack of, of faith, a guy named Penn Jillette. I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but after his show, a Christian had come up and waited through the whole line to give him a Bible. Right? And in that Bible, he gave like 15 different ways you could contact him afterwards should he be wanting to talk more about Jesus and faith. And what's fascinating is this, this atheist says this, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize, which is a technical word for just try and persuade others to follow Jesus. He said, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not worth telling them because it'll be socially awkward, I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to, to believe everlasting life is possible and then not tell them that? And then he says, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming, bearing down on you, and you didn't believe the truck was coming, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. Pretty pointed words from somebody outside of the church. See, what Peter does here in our text he calls the church of royal priesthood. Uh, this, is, this is who we are, and you stop and think about, okay, what do priests do in the Bible in its most basic, simplest form? They, as I heard it put, they, they bring people to God, and they bring God to people. Right? Priests represent God to the people, and they bring the miseries, the shame, the the accidental harm and the, the intentional, willful screw-ups and evil of God's people to the living God, into his presence through sacrifice. Right, or as, as Hebrews puts it in chapter 5, priests bring people who know they are willingly breaking God's commandments because they want to do it. And they also bring those who accidentally sinned, the ignorant, those who just didn't know. But that's that's the call of a priest in its most simple form that, that you bring God to the people and the people to God. And in the Old Testament specifically, it was through the tabernacle in one specific place. Right? Or, so we could put it in New Testament terms. We priests bring Jesus to sinners and sufferers. And we bring suffering sinners to Jesus. Right? So you think about this call to share your faith that is a part of being a priest because this is who we are. We are Jesus' representatives in the world, called to bring God to the, to the world. <laughs> and those in our immediate community that we are around to Jesus as we are able. Right? And so if you think about it, is that if our identity is to be a public witness, to be a priest, to, be, to bear God's name, to represent him in the world, as Peter's talking about here. How's the church doing? <laughs> right? What's fascinating is last year there was a, a study that came out by Barna. They're always putting out research stuff on, on religion. And Christians my age, 40-ish, uh, right, and younger, millennials, here's what they believe about evangelism and talking about faith in public. They believe that Jesus commands us to witness, that, that we represent Jesus to the world. Uh, they believe that the best thing that could ever happen to a person is that they would meet Jesus, trust him, and have grace change their lives. And they believe that we ought to be able to answer good questions 
address doubts. They, they have the ability to explain who Jesus is and what he's done. But at least half of Christians my age or younger, this is in America, of course, um, believe it's morally wrong to try and persuade someone else to follow Jesus. Right? Morally wrong to bring, as a priest, <laughs> to bring them to Jesus. So, so now you see that the, the conflict, right? I mean, this is, this is the challenge of being a priest. There's, there's social awkwardness. Uh, there's just a, a cultural pressure, right? Where people my age and younger feel that pressure that if you disagree, then perhaps they will treat you like you're a bigot. Um, there's fear there. And so my question as we jump into this text is, do we, because this is addressed to y'all, <laughs> this is us together, do we understand what it means to be a royal priesthood, a chosen race, uh, called to proclaim God's excellencies, to have a message to share uh, with the people that God has placed us among? Because right, you look at verse 9, he says, all y'all, right, it's you plural, are to be a community of God's people who, who proclaim uh, God's excellencies, which is his character and the things he's done. Right? And then verse 12 is also really clear that we do that living among the Gentiles, among people who are outside of the faith, who are outside of the community of the church. Um, you do good deeds so that they see God in us, and they say, thank God you're here. And they want to, they're going to do that at the end of all things, on the day of visitation. And so you put those pieces together. Right? The church is a community of Jesus' witnesses that through our words, our proclaiming, our telling the good news, and our good deeds uh, bring Jesus to the people, to our neighbors. Right, and the word good for good deeds, right, in verse 12, has, has also has an attractive element to it, that, that they see something we do, similar to how, how that atheist responded. He's like, I don't, all I know is that person loved me. I don't agree with his faith, but I know he loved me. And he was attracted to that act. So it's good and beautiful. Right. I love what Madeline uh, LaEngle says. She's the author of The Wrinkle in Time, right? We draw people to Christ. We represent Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by, and telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but, but part of our call is to show them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to see the source of it. <laughs> show them a light so lovely, the excellencies of God, that they want to know, why did you do that? Why do you love me like that? Why would you forgive that? Why would you take the hit for me? Why would you pay my bills? Why would you show mercy to me? Right. And so, that's the challenge as we jump into this text. Does that describe you? <laughs> Does that describe our community as we, as we live life together? Um, we're, we're gathered people right now proclaiming God's excellencies and we're sent out to do the same. So how do we do that? We have to know who we are. That's the first point. Uh, the church is given an, an identity that is, this is phenomenal. It's full of, full of the gospel. So let's dig in. Look at verse 9, where Peter says, uh, you, or y'all, are, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
right? And so these are identity statements. This is who you are as a church. And so who, what is the church above all? If you could summarize it. We belong to God. Or even more specific, right? The church is loved. Right? To be a chosen person in biblical language, and it's all through Peter, chosen language is I love you language. That's why we celebrate engagements. Two people chose each other. It's I'm committed to you language. Right? And, and in Peter and through all through the scripture, God never chooses people because they're choice. It's not because they're better than others or because they're worthy of the call. No, God pursues those who are ashamed. And he loves them and gives them the honor that Christ alone can give. You know, to be a chosen race, to be a holy nation, to be connected to Jesus who is also chosen, it's, it's trying to get this picture in your mind of, of the depths and wonder of how much love and honor God gives his people in particular. And this, is, this is Ed Clowney, the great Bible commentator and, and Bible teacher. Uh, he says, nothing can explain or rationalize God's love for sinners. Because the language of love is lavished upon God's people in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people are his inheritance. They're his personal and prized possession, his treasure. God carries his people on his shoulders the way a father carries a son. He carries the, the, the weak in his arms. He holds them in his hand. No one can ever snatch them out of his hand. He seats them at his feet in his presence. Uh, you find pictures of God loving with a jealous love. They're to be a, his alone to the exclusion of every other God. He gives them the honor of carrying his name in the world. God loves sinners with the love of a father has for a son, with the jealous love a husband has for his wife, uh, the delight a master craftsman has in his creation. Right? See, Peter, just by way of introduction here, he's saying, who is the church? It's the people whom God loves. He set his affection on them. And you can't rationalize it because it's all by grace. They don't deserve it. All right? They can get a little more specific here to, to call the church a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. That comes straight from Exodus 19. Uh, Peter's, again, pulling from the Old Testament to talk about this international community of Jesus followers. And so it'd be good to, to read it. And this will help us understand what Peter's getting at. So if you turn to Exodus 19, we're going to read verses 1 to 6. We've inherited what Israel was called to do. <clears throat> All right, so Exodus 19 is God has led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And before he tells them what to do, he's going to tell them who they are. And it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out to the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and then encamped in the wilderness. There Israel camped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. 
the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So I think you can hear the echoing of, of Peter and Peter's and, and, and Exodus here. See, God's plan for Israel was that they would represent God to the nations and bring the nations to God. To be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And they were to do this as God's treasured possession. And that, that's a very specific word in the Old Testament. It's, it's this idea they are his prized possession, but it also means that they're a, a, a treasure that God can move wherever he wants. He could put them on display wherever he desired. And so if you can think about it this way, in the Old Testament, Israel had the posture of belonging to God, right? They're in this relationship, the horizontal relationship, but as those as a kingdom of priests together, modeling the life of faith, they also had a posture where they were supposed to be in the presence of their neighbors and among the nations. Right? Of course, you know the story of the Old Testament. They blew it over and over and over again. Because if you look at the language in Exodus 19, it says, here's who they will be. This is what they will do if they obey. It's conditional. Right? If they respond to God's love, his choice with faithful obedience, by doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with their God, if they choose him and keep his commands, they're going to faithfully represent his, him and his name in the world. But that's not the story of the Old Testament, unfortunately, or our story. Now, the whole story of the Old Testament is God set his affection on Israel, but Israel set their affection on every other God around them, and they became more like their neighbors than the holy people they were called to be. Right? God loved Israel, but Israel had other lovers and so I think that's why Peter moves from there to the story of Hosea. Because right? if you're in 1 Peter, you're following along here, right? This is who you are. You're called to posture before God. You're, you're, you're thanking him. You're praising him. But you're also postured towards your neighbors. Um, right? And then he says, once you were people who did not know mercy, now you received Mercy, once you did not, you were not God's people, now you are. That's, that's a direct quote from the prophet Hosea. Right? And so that's, that's the condemnation of Israel of old. They did not live up to the if. They weren't obedient. Right? That Israel, by choice, became a people who did not receive mercy. And so you, know, you remember the story, we talk about it a couple times a year here. Right, that, that God told Hosea, I want you to go marry a woman who will crush your heart because she will commit adultery against you. And I want you to love her. Because that is a picture 
of how my relationship is with Israel. I love them, they go astray. Right. And so Hosea obeys. He marries this lady named Gomer, who does exactly what was foretold. She, she breaks Hosea's heart. She leaves. She actually has children. And, and this, is the, the, this is a metaphor. It's a living parable, but it's, it's saying she had children with other lovers. And um, one of the kids' names, right, God says, call them not mine, because Israel's not mine. She has a daughter. And the Lord says to Hosea, call the daughter, no mercy, because I'm not going to have mercy on Israel. She has a son. He says, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's heavy. See, part of every human being's battle to be a priest in God's presence, and then to turn around and be a faithful priest representing God in the world, it's the same sin as Israel. We don't respond to God's love with awe, with joy, with humble gratitude. Instead, we look for our identity, our meaning, our foundation, our hope, our love from something else in the world. And Hosea nails that down and says that isn't just breaking God's commandments. Um, that's committing spiritual adultery. Right? And so if you're going to represent God to the world and say Jesus is worth following with everything you have and you're committing spiritual adultery, that's sending two different messages. And so we got to turn and say, okay, I, how do I get to that point where I want to tell people how amazing it is to be loved by this God? And so keep reading in Hosea, and this is what happens. All right? You've heard God's woundedness. You're not mine. You're not my people. I'm not going to have mercy. That's what you would expect any wounded lover to do. Right? The relationship's done. I'm angry. I'm hurt. Right? We, that's what divorce happens. That's why we send, when we're broken, we send people away. But that is not what God does in Hosea, is it? Because you get to chapter 2, and God tells Hosea to keep loving his wife. And there's a place in chapter 2 that still it, it continually blows my mind, where Gomer is living with another man, and Hosea is the one providing exactly what she needs to survive. There's a guy who can't even pay his bills or provide for her. And Hosea shows up and says, I'm going to make sure you have food on the table. As a picture of how God loves his people. That's the portrait of God's steadfast love for sinners. Right? Of course, God says this will not always be so, and that's where Hosea 2 ends. It says, this will, at one point, someday in the future, those who are, have not received mercy will receive mercy. They're going to respond differently. Right? And so in 2.14, God says, Therefore, I'm going to allure her, my people. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. Right? Just pause there. Right? Think about all the rage that comes from, from being betrayed. And here's God saying, I'm going to talk tenderly to these moral failures, <laughs> to those who've responded unfaithfully 
And he says, I'm going to give her her vineyards. I'm going to provide for her. I'm going to bless her. I'm going to make the valley of Achor a door of hope, right? That's, that's a, a period where, um, well, it's, it's somebody who was stealing and broke God's commands. And it's a, it's a place of horrific trouble in the history of Israel and Joshua. And he says, that hor- horrific evil, I'm going to turn that into a door of hope. I'm going to turn their shame to praise. So someday in the future, she's going to respond joyfully. And then the pro- here comes the promise. I'm going to betroth you to me in righteous and justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. You're going to know the Lord and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And they will, they will say, he will say, you are my God. <laughs> and Peter is saying that day is now. Anyone who's following Jesus such a brilliant move on Peter's part, right? We're called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into light, right? If you're a gomer and you see your boyfriend provide you food and you have no idea that it's at your actual husband, Hosea, providing you for you, you're living in the dark. You have no idea you've just received mercy. But at some point, the, the, the switch gets flipped on. You realize you have a creator, you have a Lord, you have a God who loves you. And you turn around and say, the only way this God can love me is if he shows mercy. Right. And that's, that's what God does, and that's how this prophecy uh, is fulfilled in Jesus. Because when you get to chapter 3 of Hosea, Hosea is told, Go love a woman who is loved by another man, who is an adulteress, just like the Lord loves the children of Israel. And, and it says, Hosea redeemed her. He bought her in the slave market. That's where Gomer's choices of letter. Um, see, Gomer is being sold. Her, her shameful decisions have left her naked and ashamed. And Hosea, at cost to himself, says, you're going to be my wife. And of course, that's a portrait of how Jesus loves the church. He looks at us in our shame, living in the wreckage of our spiritual adultery, and redeems us. He buys us. Not with money, of course, not with gold or silver, but as Peter has already said, it's something more precious than that, than through his life, the shedding of his blood, through his death on a cross. And of course, Jesus goes further because he doesn't just die for his ashamed church. He bears our shame. He takes our place. When you see Jesus dying on the cross, victims on the cross did not wear clothes. His clothes were being sold to the highest bidder. They were gambling for them. He's naked and ashamed. He's receiving the cosmic, not mine. He's receiving the cosmic divorce, if you will, the no mercy, the judgment a spiritual adulterers deserve. And then... Through his resurrection, right, Jesus endured the shame of the cross so that we might be this chosen people, have the honor of representing this God who's shown mercy to the world. See, the basic qualification to be a priest in God's kingdom, and I'm going to keep hitting this hammer, right? Hitting this with the same nail with that hammer. You've got to go to him with your shame. 
got to recognize I'm a person who needs mercy. And the more you see you need mercy, the more you delight in it, the more you're thankful for it, the more you weep over it, and the more it becomes something you want to talk about. And then you're, you're being equipped from the heart to go talk about them with other people. So the qualification to be lavished by God's love is to bring your sin and shame to Jesus, to be forgiven much so that you love much. So if you look at Peter, did you notice what's missing between Peter and Exodus? If you were to compare them? There's no if. There's no if. There's no condition. It's simply... You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Why? Because you're connected to Jesus, the cornerstone, the perfect Israelite, the faithful one. Now you can keep going here. There's a lot. Um, that in itself is super encouraging, right? Here's why you... Praise is because we're a people who did not receive mercy and now we've received mercy. And if you're a Gentile, if you're outside of the family of Israel, that's even more so. Right? But look at what Peter says about us. This is who we are. We are the church is a chosen race. Right? So I don't I should have done the math, maybe I could have, but somebody somebody here might know how many different family systems we have, right? Our family trees are are mostly separate. And yet through Christ, because of Christ's blood, the church is called a chosen race. Right. In Israel, it was literal, right? It was, it was ethnic. It was by blood. They were connected to Father Abraham. But here, the church, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, we're, we're called family. Literally, it's the word genus, right? For all you scientist types. The word species. <laughs> right? We're a whole new whole new kind of species of human joined together by grace through Jesus. A peculiar species because <laughs> we're marked by mercy. And so that is a longer conversation, but just think about that. How would that affect our life together? How would it affect the way we view race relations in the church or people coming from different cultural backgrounds if we're all one family? Right. That says something to our neighbors when, when enemies outside the church don't get along, but they come into the church, and Jesus says, gives them the motivation and the desire to make room for someone different because we're a different species. <laughs> uh, we're a holy nation. All right? That's describing the church universal again. Holy, which means different, committed for Jesus' sake. But a nation going to change our life together, right? Because if, if this is the nation that you are a citizen of, right, the church, first and foremost, that changes the way you relate to the country of your birth, right? So before you're American now, by grace, you're a Christian, and your Christianity informs your Americanness or your Korean or your African, uh, Ethiopian, I mean, fill in the blank. It's, it's the word ethnos. I mean, you're, you're now, we're now, this is the, the ethnic group we are a part of, the church, and it, right? Jesus' Jesus's authority comes first. 
Right? I mean, that, that's next week, right? The church as a holy nation is going to change the way you relate to the governing authorities over us. We submit to them, even as we submit to Jesus first. So come back next week. But you're starting to get an idea here. This is what Peter's up to. He's just bombarding these suffering Christians and saying, look at how loved you are, and look at the mission God has given you. He's honored you with. And because you're his treasure possession, he has the right to put you in a place where you wouldn't choose naturally by yourself in exile, but be faithful where God has planted you. And our mission now as royal priests, the royal priesthood, is to represent the God who loves us in the world. And so how do you live? How do you live as a royal priesthood? And this will lead us to the table. And if you and I are a royal priesthood called to bring Jesus to, to our neighbors and our neighbors to Jesus, uh, one of the ways you do that is through what, pe- what I'm calling doxological evang- evangelism. Even evangelism. Whew. It's my fault I made it a tongue tire. <laughs> it's just simply saying you, you praise God in public. Right? That's what doxology is. It's praise, evangelism, talking about Jesus to others. So you say thank God for who he is and what he's up to right now in front of someone else. Right? Praise him. Thank him. Give him credit. Don't, don't hide it. Right? I know it makes us uncomfortable. I know C.S. Lewis is someone that I found really helpful in learning how to follow Jesus. But when he was an atheist and he started to read the Bible and he heard this command to praise, it made him really uncomfortable. Because right? you read the Psalms, it's like praise him. It's everywhere. It's saying it's a command. Even here, right? Proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved you. And God doesn't just demand it as the supremely beautiful, excellent, most excellent thing in the universe. He, he does so as a lawgiver. This is something we are commanded to do as Christians. Proclaim, praise. But Lewis points out, and I think this is a helpful connection, Everywhere you look in every conversation you have, somebody is praising something. Lovers praise their loved ones. Readers praise their favorite book or poet. Uh, if you're in the nature, you're praising the beauty of the countryside. If your kids are playing a game, they're praising their game. You talk about weather, wine, actors, horses, colleges, movies. I mean, you just keep going on and on because praise is actually the inner health of a person made audible, which is what, what Lewis says. Which is a way of saying, uh, praise is just telling the world what you love most. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise doesn't just tell somebody about it, but you actually enjoy it more. <laughs> right? So think about it this way. One of the cool experiences I had as a young adult is I got to go uh, backpack around Northern Ireland, uh, the northeastern coast. So I got to see the Giant's Causeway and, and county, part of County Antrim and Belfast and read some of the history, and it, it was something I did by myself for six days. And I can tell you it was ph- phenomenal. But you know what would have made it so much better? <laughs> if I had someone else to turn to and say, look at how beautiful this is. Because that, that enhances the enjoyment. Even as it reveals what I, what I enjoy. And it, Peter and Lewis are saying something similar. To be human is to proclaim, and to be a Christian is to proclaim how good God is. And in doing so, you're, you're not only expressing your enjoyment of him, you're making it deeper. 
And so, where do you praise Jesus as the church? According to Peter, where does this doxological evangelism take place? Where do you live as a holy nation? Where do you live as priests? Well, look at verse 12. I, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Right? There it is. Right? Not just here in the community of the church, but out there where people who don't know Jesus hear it and see it. So how do you live as a royal priest, bringing God to the people and the people to God? Well, God says, hey, I love you. Get out. <laughs> You're in exile. It's no different than what he said to Father Abraham. I love you. You're blessed. Leave home. Right? To go live among people who are going to think you're weird or, in worst case, evil. Go be strange. Go be holy for Jesus' sake among the Gentiles. To say no to things that the culture loves simply because Jesus says so. Because these things wage war against your soul. Right? I mean, it's, it's something we all know, but if you've, if you've been, spent a long time around the scriptures, but it's a challenge. This is the mission of the church, to enjoy God, love the gospel, and live out your faith in the presence of others. And so, if our role as priests is to love the gospel, respond to the gospel, and then live that out in front of people who don't know Jesus, that's the question. Uh, do you have non-Christian friends? Right. Or do, you, do you see purpose in going to work? Do you see purpose in living out your faith in your home? Do you see God's design to get you to publicly praise Jesus wherever he has planted you? Because you're his chosen treasured possession that he decided to plant here to show off his excellency, right? And so when they ask, why are you so weird? <laughs> right, that's the goal. Why, do you, why have you forgiven me? Why, have you, why do you actually care about me and my suffering? You say, well, let me show you Jesus. Come to church. And you can show him Jesus who deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. I left one key word out of this whole picture. Uh, we're royal priests. Right? So we're not just servants, although that is true. We're, we're a royal priesthood, which means king, kingly, queenly. We're ruling. So how do you rule with all the Jesus-given authority in the world? praising Jesus and embodying his gentleness with sinners. We're a royal priesthood, right? You got this high honor, and then you follow in the footsteps of Jesus and go serve. I, mean, I told my kids, we've been reading a story about kings and queens, and, and they're like, I want to be a king. <laughs> Every kid wants that, right? And I said, well, that's how God made us in Genesis. We're made in the image of God. We are kings and queens. And it was fascinating. One of them literally like stood up. And I was like, this feels good. This is right. <laughs> right? And what was he doing? He was experiencing the honor of being called royal. 
But that royalty has a purpose in Jesus' economy, that we, we do so as priests, serving the world and serving the God who loves us. Right. So, why did we do what we did in the pandemic? Right. One of the things that informed our, the elders' uh, response to the pandemic is just this. We are priests. We, we stand in God. We, right, we have to obey God. We obey Jesus first. But we also recognize, hey, the watching world is paying attention to how we respond to their suffering, to their having to wear a mask. Right. Do they care about us? If you don't wear a mask, at least in that particular case, back, back in last March, April, etc., right? they would say, who are these people? They don't love me. Right? That's part of being a priest. You start to ask that question in every kind of context where you're at. Do people see Jesus in the way I relate to them? So, what is the mission of Jesus' church? Bring Jesus to people and people to Jesus through our words, proclaiming, and our good deeds among our neighbors. And we do that because that's what God has done for us, and that's what the table represents. Right? God, Jesus brought God to us. He incarnated. He became human. He was a different species in the way he loved, was he not? A different kind of human. Nobody's ever lived or loved like Jesus loved. He came to love sinners to repentance at great cost to himself, even to death on a cross. And then when he rose again from the dead, what's the very first thing he did? He remembered the shame of his people. He told the first witnesses at the empty tomb, go and tell my brothers. Go tell Peter. I want to talk to him. He pursued them and called them into this priestly service of the gospel to make Christ known across the street and to the ends of the earth. And that's the same pattern for us. That he calls us who were ashamed, who've received this honor, to go and give thanks to God and then go out and do the same in front of others. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that you uh, are at work in us. That you are teaching us how to faithfully follow you and that you have loved us for a purpose. And so I pray there are those here who do not know Jesus and, and do not know the, the freedom that grace gives, that we are loved more than we can imagine despite being more sinful than we'd ever dare admit because of, because of the cross. Uh, show them Jesus. And for us who now know that we had not received mercy, but we have received mercy, may that form us into a people who can't stop talking about it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.